0: Well, during the Christmas season, we are doing this series on Christmas fathers and mothers. Last week, we talked about God the Father purposing the eternal covenant of redemption. This is the title that's given to the eternal agreement between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, an agreement to save elect sinners by the grace of God alone. So the salvation of sinners was purposed by God the Father that salvation was then accomplished by the Son when he came into the world as a man, and, and uh, the, this, this one who was fully man, fully God, accomplished salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. Well, that salvation is then applied to individual sitter, sinners by God the Spirit so they can be saved. So everything that we celebrate at Christmas and at Easter was decreed in the eternal covenant of redemption. Another thing that was decreed in eternity was the birth of John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah. John's parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we read of their story in Luke chapter 1. So first, Luke tells us about events surrounding John's birth, and then secondly, Luke records for us the prophetic song that Zechariah wrote, sung, in celebration of the Lord's work in sending John who would point toward the Messiah. So our first main point is this. Zechariah and Elizabeth are examples of righteous people being faithful to the Lord during a time of much disobedience and unbelief. So we'll be in Luke 1 all this morning. So we'll begin with uh, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zecharias. Zecharias and Zechariah are the same. It can be translated the way of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Zechariah was a priest. Uh, all that happens to him and these verses in the context of him fulfilling his duties as a priest— Interesting to note that his wife, Elizabeth, was born into a priestly family herself. But more important is how they are described in verse 6. It says, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So to be righteous in the sight of God requires that a person be perfectly righteous in other words, they never, have, they never did anything in their life that was not right according to God's law, nothing. So the only way to be righteous in this sense is to have God reckon us to be righteous. He must impute a record of righteousness that is received not by works, but by faith. The Bible calls this being justified. Our righteous deeds, our unrighteous deeds, are removed, are forgiven, and the righteousness of Christ is given then as a gift. And again, this is only possible through faith in the Messiah, through faith in Jesus Christ. So this tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth had an active faith in the Savior who was to come and to accomplish salvation for them. And it's also true that anyone who has this gift of right standing before God will also seek to live in righteous ways. That's what it says about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Not only were they righteous in the sight of God, but they are also described as walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So they were intent on living in ways that were pleasing to God. This is called sanctification. Those who are justified before God will also live a life of sanctification, a life of holiness. This was not the norm in Israel at this time. We're told in verse 5 that Herod was the king of Judea. Herod was a cruel tyrant. He is the one who had all the baby boys two years and younger killed in and around Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And it would also be true that the phrase righteous in the sight of God would not describe very many of the Jews at this time. But Zechariah and Elizabeth were. And God would use them to bring a great witness and a great hope to their nation. They were clearly exemplary people. One thing I think that's another application to make, when you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, both described with the same words. This is a word to all those who are single. You need to live this way. And you also need to make sure you date and marry somebody who's like this as well. Righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly, do that yourself, and also look for for, for others who are living that same way. You'll be blessed. So, from their story, we learn several things. One, being faithful to the Lord does not exempt, does not exempt a person from enduring serious trials. Verse 7 says, they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Barrenness was about the worst thing that could happen to a married woman. Having children was seen as a sign of God's blessing on those who honored Him. Often the barren woman was shunned, looked down on, even despised. It was a hard trial to endure. The lesson here is that being faithful to God does not guarantee that you won't suffer trials in your life. Oftentimes, Christians suffer some of the greatest trials. We endure them by faith. We endure by believing that all that comes to us comes from the hand of a God who is perfectly wise. We endure by believing that all that comes to us comes from the hand of a God who is perfectly good. And so by God's grace, our trials can drive us nearer to the Lord and not push us away from him. Well, it's in this context that we see our next point. God hears the prayers of his people and often answers in ways that are far beyond what they expect. God hears the prayers. Verses 8 through 17. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God and the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the, of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So on this particular day, Zechariah was chosen by a casting of lots to be the one who would offer up incense and pray on the golden altar of uh, incense that was located in the holy place in the temple. This was done twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. There were many, many priests because of that, Zechariah, what Zechariah did on this day was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Even though he was an older man, he had never done this before. So while he was offering up incense and offering prayers for peace upon Israel, an angel of the Lord appears to him. Now this would be an amazing experience no matter when it happened or who it happened to. But what made this even more remarkable is that God had not spoken to Israel for 400 years. There had been no prophetic word. There had been no messages from angels. No word of any sort since the Old Testament ended with the prophet Malachi. Zechariah had no idea that this was going to be God's response to the prayers he was offering up. The Lord went far beyond what he expected. We read in verse 12 that Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. So even those who are righteous in the sight of God are gripped with fear when a holy and radiant one from the heavenly realms appears. The reason is this. I think, is that we all know the condition of our hearts. I mean, even the most righteous person is going to be immediately aware of sin within them. But the angel Gabriel comforts him with the words, fear not. Then he says, your petition has been heard. What petition is that? Well, in light of the fact that we have just been told that Elizabeth was barren and then we are told later that they will have a son, it would seem that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying about their desire for a child. But it's also interesting to note that because of the season in life that they were in, they probably had stopped making this request a long time ago. This was an old prayer, not recent. But Gabriel says, your petition has been heard. It's not up to us to determine the time and the manner in which God answers our prayers. Think of the prayer requests, multiplied, hopefully, thousands, millions of prayer requests that we have made over the years. You may very well see answers to those requests in ways that you never anticipated. But there was another petition involved here that's connected that Zechariah brought before the Lord. While he was offering up the incense, he would be offering up prayers of thanksgiving to God for his blessing and also making supplication for peace upon Israel. That's what the priest did. Well, in answering Zechariah and Elizabeth's request for a child, God was also answering the request for peace. That's because their son would be the forerunner of the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. He's the only one who could bring about peace between God and man. He is the one who would provide salvation for all who would believe. And all these things were tied up in the fact that Zechariah's petition had been heard. God is always doing way more than we, than we realize. Way more than we realize. Gabriel promises, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. The name John means Jehovah is gracious. So John's birth and his ministry would highlight the graciousness of God. Now, a couple things that we see about his birth is this. One, the birth of John would bring great joy and hope, great joy and hope. Verse 14 to 16 says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So the birth of John would surely bring great joy to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also to anyone who knew what he was called to do. And the fact that this meant that the Messiah was near because his ministry would be to proclaim and, and prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. Now, this idea of him refraining from, from wine or liquor was part of what was required in the Nazarite vow. So we seem to, it seems to be that we're supposed to make a connection here. The Nazarite was set apart from anything that could defile him. And this is identifying John as one who would be really what you would call an eminent servant of God. Um, and again, what, what joy it brings to Christian parents when they see their children serving the Lord. That's another part of the joy that Zechariah and Elizabeth are going are to see in their son John. We also see here next that the birth of John would be a fulfillment of prophecy as he would prepare the way for the Messiah. It was clear that John would have a truly holy work to accomplish when we see that even in his mother's womb, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting to note that this is never said about anyone else in the Bible. So this is unique. John had a unique and crucial calling. And if he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, then certainly his whole life and ministry was going to be empowered by the Spirit of God. Verse 17 tells us what his special ministry was. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the children back to the children, turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is the great work that God had set John apart for. He would be the fulfillment of the prophecy of one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. Now this verse that's quoted here is Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. That's the last verse of the Old Testament. So the last thing that God had spoken before this word that was given to Zechariah. Zechariah's son would come to get the Jews ready to hear and receive the Messiah. The preparation required was to recognize their sin, recognize their unbelief, and repent. The Messiah was the one who would provide the forgiveness and salvation that they so desperately needed. And that's the reason Gabriel said in verse 14, many will rejoice at at his birth. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. John's ministry meant that Jesus Christ would soon accomplish the salvation work that had been promised for centuries. And after this wonderfully encouraging message, we read about Zechariah's response in verses 18 to 25. Zechariah said to the angel, "'How will I know for certain, for I am an old man, "'and my wife has advanced in years.' "'The angel that answered and said to him, "'I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zechariah and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he returned back home. After these, days, pregnant, uh, his, <laughs> after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in these days, when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace from among men. Zechariah is full of doubt and unbelief. It's like, how can I know this for sure? How is this even possible? He's basically saying here, I don't believe you. People our age do not have children. But we learn from this, your next, this next point, even a righteous person can be guilty of unbelief. Even a righteous person can be guilty of unbelief. Zechariah would be well acquainted with Abraham and Sarah having Isaac in their old age. He knew that story. He knew about the Lord opening Hannah's womb for Samuel to be born. But in that moment, he forgot those things or couldn't see how it possibly could apply to them. All he could think of was how impossible this was. Again, sometimes even godly people act in unbelief. In the midst of the challenges that we face in life, it sometimes feels hard to trust God's promises in the scriptures. One of the prayers that uh, was prayed by a a man that Jesus was going to heal his son, and um, you could see his faith was faltering, and the man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That might be a prayer that might fit for us sometime. There's probably things that we're praying about that we kind of believe, but we kind of don't. We always need help. Well, Gabriel responds to Zechariah's unbelief in a couple ways. First, he makes sure Zechariah knows who he is. He says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, identifying himself as Gabriel would resonate with Zechariah. He would surely recall that it was Gabriel who spoke to the prophet Daniel um, with the prophecy of the 70 weeks, 540 years earlier. It was Daniel's prophecy given through the lips of, of Gabriel that pinpointed the time period in which the Messiah would come to the earth. That should greatly encourage Zechariah, continue to help him draw make connections here. Gabriel then adds that he stands in the presence of God and was sent by God to speak these words to Zechariah. So this is the very word of God that you're saying you don't believe. This is good news. You should receive it gladly. Well, then Gabriel spoke about the punishment that Zechariah was going to receive. He would be unable to speak until John was born. This tells us, I've been in class before where we've debated whether unbelief is a sin or not. It is. Unbelief is a sin. It is accusing God of being deceitful. It is a denial of his power from what he has promised to do. Zechariah's punishment was consistent with his sin. It's with his mouth he uttered unbelief. Therefore, he would be unable to talk for nine months. Now, his punishment is first seen when he comes out of the temple. Many people are there waiting for him to pronounce a blessing on them. And all he could do was make motions with his hands. But God was merciful in that Zechariah's punishment was temporary. And Elizabeth became pregnant just as was promised. She was so encouraged because God had not only given her a child, but also taken away the disgrace that she had felt for so long from other people. We're told then in verse 57 that John was born. Her neighbors and relatives were so happy for her. Everyone was suggesting that they should name the child after his father. Elizabeth surprised them by saying no. His name will be John. Obviously, she obviously got that from her husband, Zechariah. Well, then they asked Zechariah. He wrote on a tablet, yes, his name is John. There was no doubting Zechariah's faith now. He was immediately given his voice back, and his first words he spoke were a beautiful declaration of praise to the Lord. So in our second main point, we see this. Zechariah was inspired by the Holy Spirit to author a song of praise and prophecy. Verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So after nine months of not being able to speak, Zechariah is like bursting with praise. I mean, he's just bursting. He is so grateful for the salvation, for the redemption that God has provided. And his son is going to be the forerunner to announce that Messiah. And as we look at what Zechariah had to say, we see that he is speaking these things as one who has been filled by the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Spirit to say what he said. And we also note here, and this is an interesting observation about the work of the Spirit. We note that Zechariah's praise as we work through it is focused on the work of God the Father and the work of God the Son. The Spirit is always glorifying the Father and the Son. That's a significant aspect of the role of the Spirit. So look now at verses 68 to 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So first thing we see here is this. God deserves great praise, great praise for the glorious work of salvation that he provides through Christ. In these words, we can see right off that Zechariah makes sure make sure that we realize that the work of salvation for sinners is totally of God. It's completely the work of God. It is not something man can do. It's initiated by God. It's accomplished by God. So he is the one who gets all the glory for our salvation. Look at some of the phrases that Zechariah uses. In verse 68, God is the one to be blessed because he has visited us. He has accomplished redemption. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation. Verse 70, he spoke of this salvation by the prophets. Verse 72, he is the one who shows mercy. He is the one who made covenant and remembers his covenant. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. So what is it that motivates God to provide salvation for such undeserving people? Well, verse 72 says he's motivated to show mercy toward our fathers. So he's motivated by his own mercy. It's part of God's nature. It's part of God's character to be merciful. He is a God who is kind, and mercy especially puts his kindness in the context of people who are in great need. And all mankind is in great need because we have all been born into sin. Therefore, we're all under the judgment of God. God is intent on justice, but he is also full of mercy. He does not show mercy because it's deserved. We deserve the opposite of mercy. But Zechariah is praising God for his mercy. It's mercy that motivates the Lord to provide for our salvation. Well, next we see, consistent with God's mercy, we see also this next point. God has obligated himself to provide this salvation by his covenant promises. His covenant promises, verse 72 and 73. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. So Zechariah says that God made a holy covenant, as we've already said, this began with the covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and eternity, a covenant to save sinners through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And why was this covenant made on behalf of a sinful world? Because God is a God full of mercy. And because of that eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, God made covenants in history with several different men to begin to reveal what had been promised. Both David and Abraham are mentioned here. In verse 73, it says that God swore an oath, an unbreakable promise to Abraham. So God obligated himself to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. He promises in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18. God says to Abraham, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Over in Galatians 3.16, Paul tells us that that reference to Abraham's seed was singular and was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Then over in verse 69 of Luke chapter 1, he speaks of God raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant. Well, God made a covenant promise to David that one of his descendants would rule eternally. Back in verse 32 and 33, when Gabriel was speaking to Mary, he said that the son that she was going to bear would reign on the throne of David forever. So Zechariah is referencing the fact that God obligated himself to provide salvation through the Messiah by his covenant promises. And then he not only speaks of God's covenant oath. He also speaks of how the words of the prophets confirm these salvation promises. In verse 70, he talks of how God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. The very next verse he speaks of, there is a prophecy from uh, Psalm 106. But what Zechariah is actually speaking of is the Old Testament prophets in general. They all spoke of the coming of Christ in various ways. Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Malachi, Daniel, all of them spoke of the great salvation that God would provide through the Messiah. Zechariah is referencing that. And the one who then had this, Zechariah, the one who had this moment of unbelief, when hearing the angel Gabriel's words, now speaks with certainty. In fact, in verse 68 he speaks in the past tense as if, as if the Messiah's work has already been completed. He says he has visited us. He has accomplished redemption for his people. So when God makes a promise, there is nothing that can stop it from being accomplished. And Zechariah speaks as if it's already accomplished. I mean, he doubted these things nine months older, but there's no doubt in this guy now. He's full of faith. We also see that salvation is described in verse 71 and 74 as being deliverance from the hand of our enemies. What enemies are we delivered from in Christ? Well, first, sin. Sin, our own heart, is a terrible enemy. It wars against our soul, threatens to destroy us. Second is Satan. Satan is always seeking to bring eternal destruction on all men. Third is the world system. The world system as a whole is anti-Christian in its priorities and its beliefs. Death is another enemy. The wages of sin is death. the uh, wages of sin is death. and if a person dies without Christ, they must endure eternal death in hell. But the Lord Jesus Christ provides a powerful salvation that rescues us from all of our enemies. And all of this is what Zechariah is rejoicing in. As he speaks of how God has kept his covenant promises, how God has fulfilled the words of the prophets. Finally, to what end did God provide this glorious salvation? Well, that's our last point. The end for which God saves sinners is that they might boldly serve him as the image of God, as the image of God is renewed in their lives through holiness, righteousness, and knowledge to the glory of Christ. Look at verses 74 to 79. To grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So, in Christ, we are no longer in bondage to sin, to Satan, to the world system, to death. We no longer stand before God as people condemned in His sight. We have been set free so that we can serve Him we go from being slaves of sin to being slaves of righteousness so in this sense we can serve without fear and i believe here is talking about without fear of condemnation because that's been taken care of we are no longer under condemnation we still blow it we still fall to temptation we fall short in serving the lord like we should but in christ we are no longer condemned Every sin we have ever committed or ever will commit has been paid for in full by Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to note here that Zechariah uses three words in particular to describe what our service of God looks like. In verse 75, he speaks of holiness and righteousness. In verse 77, he speaks of knowledge He also says in verse 75 that believers will serve the Lord all of our days. So every true believer will persevere in their faith. Yes, again, we sin, we get discouraged, we fail. But with God's help, we get back up and continue to serve the Lord. Well, that service here is characterized by holiness, righteousness, and knowledge. These are the three main elements in the image of God. Man was created in the image of God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God was terribly distorted. And the only way to have the image of God restored in man is through the salvation work of Jesus Christ. So our service of God is characterized first by holiness. Holiness is to be set apart, It especially ties with worship. Every person is born with an inclination to worship everybody. Even those who consider themselves unreligious have something that they worship. Everybody does. There are no exceptions. It may be a person. It may be themselves. Usually it is. We all struggle with that. It may be appetites for food, sex, approval, whatever. We should worship the Lord, but because of sin, we have exchanged the worship of God for other things. But the Christian is set apart to serve the Lord. We are to be fully devoted to him. We are set apart from our commitment to sin and idolatry, and now we are committed to our Savior. We are now inclined toward true worship, who spend time with the Lord. We read his word, we pray, we sing praises, we give thanks to him, we worship and serve him together in our local churches. That's because we have been renewed in holiness. Next, our service of the Lord is characterized by righteousness. We're all born with a conscience. Helps us to know what is right and what is wrong but our conscience has been polluted by sin. So our understanding of what is truly righteous falls short of what God requires in His law. Therefore, we regularly sin against God. We regularly sin against other people. We are slaves of sin, but Christ changes that. When we are in Christ, the law of God is actually written on our hearts and that completely changes our inward inclination We're now slaves of righteousness. Our hearts are inclined toward doing what is right. We want to please the Lord with our lives, with our choices, with our decisions. So our service of God is a righteous service as well as a holy service. Finally, our service of God is characterized by knowledge. God enables us, thankfully, to be able to reason, to be able to even think deeply about things. But even so, Just in ourselves, we are ignorant of the truth of God. We can't see or understand the kingdom of God. We profess to be wise, but in reality are fools. Christ changes that. He gives us eyes to see and comprehend his kingdom. He shows us that we're serving the wrong masters. But Christ not only gives us the understanding of what we're doing wrong, he also shows us that he is the only one that can truly save us from sin. He gives us a desire to know the truth of his word. He gives us the wisdom to know what it means, how to apply it to our lives. That's serving him with knowledge. You may have already noticed when we read through here, beginning in verse 76 through verse 79, Zechariah has actually changed now where he's prophesying about the ministry his son John will have. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Then he goes through about what John's ministry will be. It's a prophecy about John, which includes giving people the knowledge of salvation. And the way that that knowledge will come is through the Savior that John will be pointing to. It's in Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven. It's in Jesus Christ that those who are hopeless can see the light. And Zechariah also compares Jesus to what he calls the tender mercy that the sunrise of a new day will bring. One of the hymns that we sing, I noticed this, I forget which one it was. It is, uh, speaks of the Lord as being the day spring from on high. Oh, come, O come, Emmanuel, maybe, is that where that was? That's from this verse. That word can be, the sunrise can be translated as the day spring. It's the first glimpse of the sunrise. And it's attributed, it's a a description attributed to Jesus Christ. So it's like the rising of the sun that dispels darkness and brings light that makes it even greater and greater as the sun continues to rise. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel dispels darkness and leads us into the light of Christ. To be in darkness is to be in a place of danger is to be in a place of fear, a place of hopelessness. It is blindness of mind and of heart. But as Zechariah says in verse 79, Christ guides our path into the way of peace. Because of our sin, we actually are not at peace with God. We're enemies of God. We disobey his law. We try to live the life he gave us by either ignoring him or purposefully rejecting him. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into glorious peace with God through our Savior. So God brought great joy to Zechariah and Elizabeth in the birth of John. As the forerunner of the Messiah, John points us to the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for examples in history of people who were righteous in difficult times, When the mood of the day was not to be righteous, it was otherwise. But thank you that Zechariah and Elizabeth stood firm for what was right. I thank you for the example of how, even though they did not realize it, you were preparing them for an amazing mission, for a responsibility that they had no idea was coming. Lord, help us to be ready. We don't know what you're gonna do. You've done many things in our lives and we could all give a list of things that we're so grateful for that you've done in us and through us and for us and taught us and so many things. Lord, there's more that you have to do. When we think about some of those prayers that we've been praying over the years, Lord, I ask that you would answer some of those prayers in ways that are far beyond what we even expect or think. Lord, I thank you so much for the focus here that's on the Messiah, that's on what Jesus Christ does for us. We thank you so much for what he has accomplished. We thank you for that salvation that we have, and help us also to grow in being more holy and more righteous and growing even more in our knowledge of the truth. Thank you for that work that you have done and are doing in our lives. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then you're in the dark. There is darkness. And in this kind of darkness, there's definitely danger. I would invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I have rebelled against you. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I receive him as my Savior, commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If, that's, if, if you would like to receive the Lord, you can um, talk about that prayer. You can put a note on your on your tear-off, or those watching online can reach out to us at the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray.